For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory. This is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. So now, church, in our ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we have arrived this morning at the conclusion of chapter 11. <clears throat> through chap- 11 chapters now of this astounding book, uh, this magnificent book, this masterful book, Paul has been magnifying the grace and mercy of God and explaining to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God in the gospel, through the gospel, through the person and work of his son is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. His mercy abounds. His riches, his grace reaches into the heavens. And through 11 chapters now, we have been allowed, as it were, to dip our toe in the ocean of that wisdom, in the ocean of that goodness, as Paul has revealed to us the basic principles of God's dealings with sinful men. And having now concluded this brief treatise on the gospel, it's a simple consideration of these things. Paul meditating on these things, right? It's a simple consideration of what God has revealed to us at this point in his word that draws from the apostle Paul now an almost involuntary expression of a worship and praise in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Right? Paul is overwhelmed. How unsearchable, God, are your judgments. How um, much are his ways past finding out, his ways past tracing out. And we simply dip our toe in the water and we're already confronted with unsearchable ways, uh, incomprehensible truths, uh, incomprehensible riches, and we are provoked to, compelled to praise and worship. The reasonable Response, if you think about it with me, right? The reasonable response of a rational human being, if he's in his right mind, the reasonable response of a rational human being to these incomprehensible truths of God is a living service of worship, a living service of praise. In light of what God has revealed in his word, Paul was, will say in chapter 12, Verse one, I beseech you, therefore, right? I appeal to you based on all that we've talked about. I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you then present your bodies, your very life, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable. It's your rational service. That word for service there in Romans chapter 12, verse one, is referring to acts of worship. It's a word that refers to a service or acts of worship. And what follows in this last section of the letter from chapters 12 through chapter 16 is essentially an application of the gospel. It's an explanation, if you will, of those acts of worship. It's an explanation of that service of worship that is the reasonable, the rational response of any reasonable human being to a vision of God. Paul concludes the letter with practical application of all that we've learned so far about the gospel. And that practical application is the life and conduct of the one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ as a result of knowing and understanding, comprehending, apprehending through faith all of these truths. 
So Paul refers to this service of worship, this living sacrifice. He refers to it as reasonable. He refers to it as rational. He refers to it that way because it's offered freely to God in response to what we know with our minds. Now, I want you to think about that with me. It's very important. It's a response to what we've come to understand. It's a reasonable response, a rational response to what we understand or know. In other words, our service to God is to be a sacrificial service of informed worship. We're to serve him, we're to love him, we're to worship him in an informed way. In other words, it's not supposed to be ritualistic. It's not supposed to be mechanistic, mechanical, or heartless. It also isn't meant to be mindless, emotional hype. Uh, it's not to be any of those things. The, the Christian life is to be a life of informed worship, informed service. Now, the Christian life, if you think about that with me, the Christian life cannot terminate simply upon what you know. Uh, it's not an intellectual, a raw intellectualism. This is not an academic pursuit. It cannot terminate simply upon what you know. What you know is to sink from your head into your heart and to find expression then from the heart in how you live, how you think, what you believe, what you value, in how you love, in how you serve, and in how you worship. is to have this dramatic transformational effect on your life. Paul says that knowledge puffs up. Amen? Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone produces pride. Pride produces a critical spirit, right? Knowledge puffs up. Love, it's love, Paul says, that edifies. But that's not an empty love, an uninformed love, an emotional hyped love. It's not people with their hands in the air with soft music playing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Right? What about him, right? It's not emotional hype. It's informed worship, informed service. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. <laughs> That's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he doesn't know anything yet that he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, Paul says, this one is known by him and loves God as a response to what he knows of God. He loves God as a response to what God has revealed to him in his word. God reveals it. We come to embrace that through faith. In knowing that applied by the spirit, we love him. We love our brothers and sisters. Amen. That's the Christian life. What we know is meaningless if it does not produce love for God and love for our brother. Now, all of that said, all of that said, we should know. We should know. We must know. We should learn and we should embrace through faith all that God has revealed to us through his word. All that God has disclosed to us, we should know and we should embrace through faith. What's amazing, what Paul is amazed by here is that even what God has revealed to us is incomprehensible. <laughs> and we're touching the hem of the garment. We're scratching the surface. We're walking around the edge. We're dipping our toe in the ocean. We're swimming in the shallows, so to speak. 
We are to learn. We are to grow in our knowledge. We are to understand. We are to seek understanding. We're to seek knowledge and wisdom. And we are to gain a heart of wisdom. Paul describes the Christian as one who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, the Christian is not one who is renewed in emotion according to the image of him who created or renewed in hype or renewed in relevance to himself or renewed in his... He's renewed in knowledge. And where does that knowledge come from? It comes from God. It comes from what God has revealed in his word. What God has revealed of himself in creation. What God has revealed to to us through the person and work of his own son. Paul says that we are given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Paul says we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, that's the point of the introduction here. It is that knowledge then applied by the spirit in the heart of a Christian that should lead us to worship with our very lives. It should lead us to love from the heart. It should lead to a sacrificial life of service and it should lead to humility. All that Paul has taught us in this letter to the church at Rome should not have led us to this point to a dry, heartless, prideful intellectualism. It doesn't lead Paul to that point. It leads Paul to worship. All that Paul has taught us in this letter to the church at Rome should humble us before a vision of who God is and what God has done, should cause us more and more to consider the greatness and the incomprehensible incomprehensibility of our God. And it should cause us to worship with Paul. In other words, It's information that leads to adoration, right? Information that leads to adoration. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And notice also with me, if we consider this, how Paul concludes this section of text here. This is the knowledge that we need. It's this knowledge that we need. It's what God has revealed to us in his word that we need. God's people need a vision of the greatness and glory of God. Why? We need to know him as he has revealed himself to us in his word. Why? We need to understand what he has done through the person and work of his son. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that there is nothing that is more practical than that. You know, people have a tendency these days, there, there is this, this anti-intellectualism that has taken over the modern church. And we don't need to know these things, just give me practical studies. I want to learn how to do this or do that. You know, give me a how-to manual, give me a silver, silver bullet. As for those attributes of God, as for studying theology, we don't need to be sitting on some lofty academic pedestal, which we don't need to be, right? But they would say that as a way to disparage learning deeply from God's word. We need to learn deeply from God's word. There is nothing more practical than knowing who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. Why is that? Well, think about it with me. Do you want to be more faithful, more faithful in your service to him? Then grow in your understanding of who he is. You'll be more faithful in your service to him. Do you want to be more faithful in your battle against sin? Then grow in your understanding of the gospel all that he has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grow in your knowledge of the gospel. It will make you more faithful, more effective in your battle against sin. 
All that Paul has taught us leads to worship. All that Paul has taught us leads to adoration, leads to service. That understanding, our understanding of the gospel, from Romans chapter 1 now through Romans chapter 11, our understanding of the gospel provides the bedrock foundation upon which the Christian life is built. You can't, you're building your Christian life on sand if you don't know the word of God. But this, this, theo- this exalted theology, this vision of who God is and what God has done, this, this understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, his plans and purposes, that is the bedrock foundation upon which the Christian life is built. It's from information to adoration to life transformation. You see? Information to adoration to life transformation. So our text this morning, at the conclusion of all this, at the conclusion of this glorious section of this letter, our text this morning then opens and concludes this section with a proclamation of praise. And it's a proclamation of praise in response to all that God has revealed in his word. Certainly, what he's revealed in this particular section of text regarding the divine purpose to save both Jews, the fullness of Jews, and the fullness of elect Gentiles through the gospel. But more broadly here, Paul's doxology is a response to all that he has taught concerning the gospel from the outset of chapter one. It's this doxology, if you think about it with me, it's this doxology at the end of chapter 11 that provides a hinge, if you will, between the theological section of the letter and the practical section that now follows. It provides a bit of a hinge. All of it's theological and all of it's practical. But you see, there's this transition that takes place now between chapter 11 and chapter 12. And this proclamation of praise acts, if you will, as a hinge between those two sections. So this proclamation of praise really can be seen as a a response to all that has been taught from chapter one. So if you think about it with me, having understood all men to be condemned under the law for their sin, really chapters one through chapter three, having considered God's free and sovereign justification of sinners through faith alone in Christ alone, chapter four, the work of the last and great Adam, chapter five, union with Christ, chapter six into chapter seven, the certainty of our hope in him, chapter eight, God's plan to save the fullness of his elect people, chapters nine, 10, and 11, all of these, Paul, it's like you're standing at the foot of the Alps, right? And there's these massive mountain peaks stretching up into the heavens. Paul sees this massive range of mountain peaks and it causes him to worship. Paul's theology erupts in doxology in verse 33, literally in the Greek. Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. You see those three categories, not merely magnifying the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, but extolling God for his riches, for his wisdom, and for his knowledge. The first, I want you to notice with me the content of Paul's praise. Paul begins with that interjection, oh, right? Oh, anytime I see an interjection, I cannot help it. It's schoolhouse rock, like comes flooding, if you're dating myself, comes flooding in my mind, right? Um, Interjection, um, ouch, that hurts. That's not fair, giving a guy a shot down there, right? It's like, it's an exclamation. Uh, Oftentimes it's set apart by an exclamation point. Um, And it's an expression of emotion, this is an expression of emotion. Paul is wearing his heart on his sleeve. Oh, the depth. Can you, can you imagine? No, you can't because it's incomprehensible. Oh, the greatness of our God. Right? He's um, expressing wonder. He's expressing amazement at what God has revealed of himself. 
And Paul's wonder and amazement is a response here to five particular characteristics or attributes of God. Five particular attributes. He's responding in wonder and amazement to the depth of God's riches, the depth of God's wisdom, the depth of God's knowledge, his unsearchable judgments, and his untraceable ways. Five particular attributes of God. The perfections of God, we would call them, right? His infinities and his immensities. This is the vast ocean of the deep things of God. And we're, we are, words fail. We're scratching the surface, right? We're dipping our toe in a vast ocean. And even that doesn't do it justice. This is a vast ocean of the deep things of God and the edge of our toe is wet, right? Paul, Paul uses that adjective depth to communicate that we are swimming in the shallows here. We can know what has been re- revealed of him truly. What he has revealed, we can know it truly, but we will never know it fully. We will never know him fully. Paul is contemplating, he's meditating on the attributes of God from what God has revealed of himself. And that meditation, that contemplation of God's attributes informs his worship. I would submit to you, we need to do that. We, We need to meditate with Paul on what we learn from his word. It's one thing to read, right? And we need to read for retention. We need to read, we need to take in chunks of God's word, because we need, to, we need to know it. And the more that you take in of God's word, uh, the more that you understand how his word fits together, those things are all very, very important. But we also need to meditate on what we're reading, what we're learning. We need to think, and we need to think deeply. We live in a, a day of uh, 20-second videos, right? 30-second videos. Uh, I don't even want to watch a, a 30-minute news program. Just give me five-minute summary on YouTube, right? It's like, um, just give it to me quick, um, that's the day and age we, we, we live in. And so from our youth, from the time we are babes, we are taught how not to think. Don't think, don't think deeply. Just get this quick fix and go about your day, all right? Go on your way. We need to think deeply. And Paul here uh, invites us, he compels us to think deeply. These are difficult things, some of them to understand. Difficult theology, exalted theology, it's, it hasn't been uh, if, you'll, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it hasn't been an easy walk from Romans 1 to Romans 11. And if you went back through those 11 chapters, how much, how much of those 11 chapters could you sit with and work through and break down and remember all of the stuff that we've talked about and learned in 11 chapters of Romans? It would take you roughly three years to do it. I think that's how long have we been in this book? It'd take you a while to be able to do it. There's a lot that we've learned Um, we need to meditate on those things, commit them to our hearts and minds, Uh, allow the spirit of God to use that raw material of the word of God to apply those things to our heart and mind so that we can respond rightly with worship. We need to know who it is that we are worshiping. We need to know who it is that we're worshiping. Now, in speaking of those five particular attributes or characteristics, Paul mentions God's riches. And in speaking of God's riches, Paul Most often when he speaks of God's riches, he has in mind uh, the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's mercy, the riches of his glory. And I would submit to you that riches aren't always or necessarily pointing forward to what is given or the blessings that are bestowed. Riches are 
his glory, right? He is rich in glory. He is rich in grace. He is rich in mercy. It points back from the gifts that he gives and points back to the giver who gives them. He is rich. In particular, that grace, mercy, and glory poured out on undeserving sinners, like we've seen in this letter. Here in chapter 11, he spoke of the riches of his grace poured out on the Gentiles. In chapter 2, Paul spoke of the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, the riches of his patience. In chapter 9, he spoke of the riches of his glory made known to the vessels of mercy. Paul also speaks elsewhere of the riches of our inheritance, which is rich indeed. Paul speaks on Ephesians chapter 2 of the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Certainly, Paul speaks of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. The blessings that flow to us from God are inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. And that's not to magnify the quantity or the wealth of those gifts per se. It is to magnify the glory of the one who gives them. Glorify the giver. As infinite, as inexhaustible, and inexhaustible, As the riches of his blessings are to us, so too are the depths, Paul says, of his wisdom and of his knowledge. Dr. Murray said this, knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition and understanding. God knows all. Wisdom refers to the arrangement and the adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of his holy designs. God knows all things, And then God applies that knowledge of all things in wisdom to decree and then to accomplish the highest and greatest good for his own glory. That is the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And again, the scale and scope of that knowledge and wisdom are incomprehensible. There are depths to his knowledge, depths to his wisdom. And as we'll see this morning, there are depths that we simply cannot fathom. And we don't understand that. We tend to think we know far, far, far more than we know. God says through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's not my thoughts are unlike your thought. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Having decreed with wisdom all things whatsoever that come to pass, God then with unfathomable wisdom providentially orders all things to their decreed end. He decrees it and then he brings it about and he brings it about with unfathomable wisdom. There's not a single stray molecule in the universe. We can't even comprehend the lengths of our universe. And there's not anything rogue in this entire created order. Again, God says to Isaiah, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my Counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, 
and he can do all, God says, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God is crushingly sovereign, omnipotent, has all power to bring it to pass, to bring a pass, to bring to pass all his wisdom, all his knowledge, all his good pleasure. I have purposed it. God says, I will do it. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. God's judgments refer to God's decreed will, God's determined purpose. God decides. God determines with infinite knowledge. God determines with infinite, perfect wisdom. His ways, God's ways, are the means by which he executes his determinations. The paths along which he accomplishes all his good pleasure. His judgments, Paul says, are unsearchable. His ways, literally, incomprehensible. Impossible to plot. They are untraceable. And again, Paul is meditating on things that should humble us. We cannot fathom them. They are unsearchable. They are, we cannot scrut the inscrutable. <laughs> we cannot know of these things fully. We can know truly what has been revealed, but we cannot know fully. It was, a, if you think about it, it was a lack of humility that led Paul to rebuke his Jewish objector in Romans chapter nine. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God, you piece of clay, Right? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Who are you, oh man? Who are you to reply against God? Uh, people will often, you know, say in their impudence that they're angry with God or they, uh, they are um, arguing with God. Who are you to argue with God, to, to reply against God? There is much, and that's an understatement, there is much that is beyond our reach. It is simply beyond our reach. We are simply out of our depth. Are you really going to argue with God? Paul doesn't respond here with anger. He doesn't respond with frustration. Paul doesn't respond with doubt or despair. Paul responds with humble and adoring worship. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, in thinking of that proclamation of praise, it's here in support of this thesis that Paul once again appeals to the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. And when Paul appeals to the, tes to the testimony of Old Testament, he does so here in order to contrast the character of God with the ignorance of man. So this reference has a purpose. And the purpose of Paul's reference from the Old Testament is to contrast the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, with the ignorance of man. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? As Paul has done before, he uses the reference here, this brief reference, to point us to a broader context. And he does so from two Old Testament passages, the first from Isaiah 40, the second from Job 41. Turn with me first to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. And let's look, as Paul would have us do, let's look at these two references in their context. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 9. At the beginning of this chapter... 
Isaiah is instructed to comfort the people of God. They're in exile. They're in despair. They're having a tough time of it. And God intends for Isaiah now to bring comfort to his people. Um, The time of her distress will come to an end. In verse 2, chapter 40, verse 2, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. At this point, what do the people need? They need comfort. They need the voice of one crying aloud in the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? Um, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. They need a vision of Almighty God. Now, we know that vision to be, eventually, uh, a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own Son. They need a vision of God. And God is going to reveal his glory, a vision of himself, to comfort his people. Verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Get a vision of God, right? Isaiah was given a vision of God in Isaiah chapter six. He saw him high and lifted up. What was Isaiah's response to that vision of God? Humility. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, right? Isaiah uh, was put into the dust over his own sinfulness, but was given a vision of the glory of God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Behold, he comes in omnipotent power. Verse 10, to accomplish his decreed ends. Behold, he has decreed reward. His reward is with him. Verse 10, blessings for his people and his work before him. He knows what to do to accomplish his determined end, to accomplish all his good pleasure. Verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, gently lead those who are with young. It is a contemplation here of the riches of God's mercy and grace in those words that compels Isaiah then to consider the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the, in the hollow of his hand, measured the hand, heavens with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? He holds it all. You could say between his thumb and his forefinger, right? He holds it all in his hand. Weighed the mountains in scales, the hills in the balance. In other words, consider the infinities and immensities of God. Verse 13, who has directed, literally measured, who has measured out the spirit of the Lord? In other words, his wisdom is unsearchable or as his counselor has taught him. There's our quote in Romans 11. Who who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who has, or as his counselor has taught him. Verse 14, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah suggests no one. These are rhetorical questions. No one can. God does what he does without any partiality to human wisdom. His ways are beyond man's comprehension. Behold, verse 15, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. They're counted as small dust on the scales. He lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as a nothing. They are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness will you compare to him? God is astounding, <laughs> amazing. Right, turn with me to Job 38 for uh, the second reference here, Job chapter 38. I know that Job is in my Bible. Job 38. Our quote comes from Job 41. We'll start in Job 38 again because Paul wants us to consider the context, right? In Job 38, like Israel, just like Israel in exile, under the prophecy of Isaiah that Paul just referenced, Job also needed comfort from the Lord. We remember why, right? Job also needed comfort from the Lord. But the comfort that would soothe the soul of Job in the time of his distress was a true vision of the glory of God. When you're going through difficult times, what we need is a vision of God. When you're in distress, when we're in despair, we need an understanding of who God is. We need to see him. We need a vision of the glory of God. If you don't know your Bibles, you're not going to be able to see him as he has revealed himself. We need a vision of God, the, the glory of God. Not here, the false ideas of God being offered by Job's worthless counselors, right? They're going to give a false idea of who God is. Job doesn't need that, right? In Job's misery, in Job's misery, these men have brought false accusations against him. They have assaulted Job with their own opinions about what Job should have done or how Job should have conducted himself. They forced Job to defend his own righteousness in the midst of his own despair. And rather than a vision of God's riches, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's glory, rather than a faith-filled hope in God's unsearchable decrees and God's untraceable ways, Job's friends here have added insult to serious injury with their own judgments and their own ways. Rather than pointing Job to the true and living God for comfort, they've only added to Job's misery with their own judgments, with their own opinions. And what does Job need right now in his misery? He needs comfort. He needs a vision of God. He needs to see in his own misery, his own circumstances, he needs to see a right perspective. Job isn't seeing things correctly in his despair. And it is only adding to Job's misery. What does Job need? Job needs a vision of the glory of God. He needs to understand more of the incomprehensible nature of God's own wisdom. And God in Job 38 shows up to give it to him, right? And to give it to his counselors. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, verse two, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? With that question now, that should have been enough, right? <laughs> that should be enough. Uh, you think about that question alone. Where were you when I laid the foundation? When I created everything, where were you? <laughs> Could have been the end of Job, and then we go on, right? <laughs> but that's not the case here. The Lord just pummels Job with question after question after question, driving that point home. Um, that horse is dead, and we're going to continue to beat it, okay? Um, 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements, Job? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you, Job? Were you there? Are you really going to act as though you have any wisdom of your own? Are you really going to act as though you know anything? You know nothing yet as you ought, Paul would say. Right? Verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Verse 16, have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Verse 18, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Question after question after question after question. God forcing Job to compare his own ignorance with God's omniscience. That's what God is forcing Job to do. Look at Job 40. Job chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. In other words, not only is man incapable of comprehending the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge, man is entirely incapable of rendering any judgment at all apart from God's own knowledge and wisdom. If we're going to render a judgment, it's going to have to come from God's truth, God's word, right? And Job answered the Lord, verse three, and said, behold, I am vile. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's, that's the response, right? When we're given a vision of the glory of God, the majesty of God, the wisdom of God, that's the response. Our brother mentioned Peter in the boat in Luke chapter five. He catches just a glimpse of the Lord in his glory, right? He casts his net on the other side of the boat. He brings in a great catch and he realizes that he's talking to Jesus Christ, the Christ, the promised Messiah. And Peter's response was, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Isaiah in the temple. Woe is me. Uh, I am undone. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord, right? Job, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Right? Job humbled at this fresh understanding of who God is. Verse six, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, (laughs) now prepare yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you shall answer me. Uh, It's just not far enough yet. (laughs) Uh, I am vile. Well, Job, I want you to see just how vile you are. (laughs) Verse eight, would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? If we presume to speak in ways that God has not spoken, uh, to say or reveal things that God has not said or revealed, um, we will answer for it. There will come a time when you and I will be corrected, right? God will correct. Verse 10, can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself, Job, with majesty and splendor. Array yourself with glory and beauty. You must think that you are like me, God says. So then if you think you are as God, Job, then take upon yourself the prerogatives of deity. Clothe yourself with majesty. 
Verse 11, disperse the rage of your wrath. Job, look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. We can do nothing of the sort. You are helpless and hopeless in your own ignorance. You and I are helpless and hopeless in our own weakness. And yet often, often men boast great swelling words of emptiness. Job is humbled in the dust by the power and majesty of almighty God. It's a vision, a vision of God, the glory of God that puts things in their proper perspective, doesn't it? The only reasonable response of any rational human being to a proper perspective of God's own wisdom and knowledge to God's judgments and God's ways is worship, is worship. Look at chapter 41. And this is where our text, our quote comes from, our reference comes from in Romans 11. Job chapter 41, verse 11. Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven is mine. No one, no man can contribute anything to God that isn't already his. In fact, the precise and entire opposite is actually true. Everything, everything that we are and have comes from him. God is a debtor to no one. He doesn't owe you anything. Oh, the depths of his riches. All knowledge, all wisdom, all power, all things, the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his glory, the riches that he lavishes upon those who place faith in his son. Romans chapter 11, verse 35, who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. No one. Paul's Jewish countrymen believed that they were entitled to eternal life, right? That God owed them the kingdom. They believed that God owed them the kingdom because they were the sons of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. They were circumcised the eighth day. They were keepers of the law. And God doesn't owe them anything. That's the whole point of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God alone. If you think that you're going to do something that then deserves or is owed a response from God, you've got another thing coming. And Job here testifies of that very thing. Romans chapter 11 testifies of that very thing. Paul preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17 says this in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. We tend to forget that in our pride. Romans chapter 11, verse 34, back there, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. (laughs) Who has become his counselor? No one. Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? No one. Why is that? Verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. God is the source. 
God is the agent and God is the great goal of all things. That is true of creation. That is true of everything that comes to pass that is most preeminently true in the salvation of undeserving sinners. For of him are all things, meaning that he is their origin and source. That is especially true of our salvation from start to finish. We don't contribute anything to that. It is all of grace. Through him are all things. Our our salvation originates with him. He initiates, he acts, he executes, he fulfills, he accomplishes. He is the agent through whom all things are directed to their decreed end. Think of these passages of scripture. One that we looked at in Romans chapter eight, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's just no room in there for you to contribute anything. (laughs) Think of this from the new covenant. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. For of him are all things and through him are all things and to him are all things. He is the goal or the aim or the purpose or the aim or the object or the end of all things. All things will terminate upon his own glory. The glory of God is the end to which everything is directed. Just as, Ephesians chapter one, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. To him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's our understanding of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, as he has revealed himself preeminently in the person and the work of his own son. It is that understanding that should fill our minds, that should fill our meditation, um, that should fill our thoughts, that should govern our decisions, our actions. It should fill our minds. Having filled our minds, meditating on those truths, it should inflame our hearts. It should uh, cause us to revel in the glory of our God, the majesty of our God. It should cause us to, it should cause us to put our face in the dust. That causes us to magnify his mercy, right? It causes us to exalt him for his grace. It should cause us to humble ourselves over our own sin. I remember a story that uh, I think it was Paul Washer was talking about his grandmother. If I remember the story correctly, he said that his grandmother was the 
the holiest person that he knew, right? the, the, godliest, the godliest person that he knew. He walked in the house one day and his grandmother's sitting at a table just weeping, just weeping. She's reading her Bible. And um, he asked her, what are you weeping about? And her response was, I am so unholy, right? She's reading her Bible. And that's the response of a godly woman. I am so unholy. It's a vision of God that humbles us in the, in the dirt, in the dust, puts our faces in the dust. But our faces in the dust, that is the proper posture of worship. Right? Of worship. And it should cause us to extol our great God and King for the wonders of his grace and his mercy toward the sons of men. It should cause us to worship and to praise him that we are accepted in the beloved. Formerly wicked, undeserving sinners, now saints, sons in the kingdom. It should fill our minds. It should inflame our hearts. And it should fuel, drive, compel what can only be described in light of these things as a reasonable service of worship. We're going to look at that as we get into Romans chapter 12 through Romans chapter 16. What, in light of these glorious truths, what should be our reasonable and rational response to these things? It should be a life of sacrificial service worship. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you uh, for this revelation of yourself. Thank you for this gracious, condescending self-disclosure of your grandeur to mere creatures. We're in awe of your majesty, in awe of your judgments and ways, in awe of your riches and your knowledge and your wisdom, in awe of your perfections, in awe of all your attributes, in awe of what you've done through the gospel, in awe that you have sent your own son for undeserving sinners to take our place, to be our substitute, to bear our sins, to impute your perfect righteousness, to justify us in your sight that we might worship and praise you in eternity. God, thank you for these indescribable gifts. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have shown us, allowing us to dip our toe in this vast ocean, to swim in the shallows. We delight to do so. Help us, Lord, to see from a correct perspective. Help us to live according to that perspective. Help us to see things rightly for the sake of your own glory. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for our own good, help us to see. Help us to, in light of that sight, help us to live for you, worthy to call it the truth. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.